Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. After PFAS chemicals were found in the area around the Coakley landfill, a Superfund site in New Hampshire, residents have been demanding answers. Never did it cross my mind that I had to question the quality of the water that my children were drinking. And so I just want you to understand that I live with guilt every single day. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll visit Coakley and learn more about official responses. And what does it mean to govern in New England when your neighbors are so close by? Because of New England's small geographical footprint, there is, I would argue, a visceral connection to how things are going well in the state next door versus what's happening here. Plus, MGM opened a new casino in Springfield, Massachusetts, touting jobs and a big tourism draw. But some locals are concerned about a possible rise in gambling addiction. We consider it the hidden or invisible addiction. You don't come home with track marks in your arms. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. A few weeks back, reporter Annie Ropeek updated us on the big problem of PFAS, chemical contaminants that are getting into groundwater around our region. Because these chemicals have been so widely used in industry, they're showing up in many locations that haven't previously had problems with toxins. But today she takes us to a place that's been a super fun site for more than 30 years, the Coakley Landfill on New Hampshire's seacoast. The landfill is a quick 15-minute drive from Portsmouth, and neighbors are again worried it could be poisoning their drinking water after a rash of childhood cancer cases nearby and the discovery of dangerously high levels of PFAS chemicals at the landfill. That's despite local officials' promises that the landfill is safe, under control, and not a threat to nearby residents. In fact, they say the landfill is mostly just misunderstood. Here's Annie's report. On the chain-link gates of Coakley Landfill, a crooked yellow sign warns, hazardous substances may be present, keep out. But today, I'm going in for a rare tour. A group of local officials leads me down a rough gravel road toward the landfill. From here, it just looks like a huge grassy hill. And at the head of the pack, strolling in shirt sleeves and sunglasses, is Bob Sullivan, Portsmouth city attorney. He can remember when Coakley wasn't so bucolic. In fact, he's one of the few people who've been part of the story since it began. It started out as a, a quarry which had been exhausted of materials so that it was a big hole in the ground. A really big hole in the ground. For years, this really big hole sat carved out of bare bedrock. Landfills in the 1970s weren't lined underneath or covered above. Coakley collected household, industrial, and municipal waste from nearby towns, including Portsmouth, from factories, and the old Pease Air Force Base. And that was actually kind of state-of-the-art back in the 1970s when people looking to get rid of municipal waste, trash, they would find a hole in the ground somewhere and fill it up. Probably seemed like a good idea. But lots of contaminants, like dioxins, mercury, and arsenic, were leaching out of the landfill through groundwater. In the early 80s, they started turning up in people's drinking water wells. 
The state shut down the landfill in 1985, and a year later, it became one of the nation's first Superfund sites, a federally managed toxic waste cleanup area. If you want to walk up this road, you get a good view of the uh, west. Another one of my tour guides, Portsmouth city planner Peter Britz, leads the way up the slope of the landfill through thick, dry grass. All around us, metal and plastic pipes poke out of the ground. Some vent gas to keep the landfill from exploding. Others go all the way down to the groundwater to monitor the contamination. This whole system is part of the remedy the Environmental Protection Agency chose for Coakley in the 1990s. It involved piling the waste up and covering it with a thick, impermeable cap. That's the grassy hill we're standing on. And then monitoring it long term, expecting the toxins to fade away on their own. That was a standard procedure. Also standard, grouping the towns and businesses responsible for the pollution into one entity, the Coakley Landfill Group. They'd be in charge of paying for and carrying out the cleanup per the EPA's instructions. Once the cap was finished in the late 90s, this once chaotic Superfund site went quiet. Most neighbors were connected to public water, and over time, they stopped talking about Coakley. New families moved in who didn't even know the landfill was there. Bob Sullivan says testing shows contamination has declined steadily inside the landfill, just like they planned. These days, he thinks Coakley might be a nice place to sunbathe or sled. In uh, in about two weeks, when this grass grows a little bit, it'll look like Maybe the foothills in Wyoming. (laughs) To Sullivan, Coakley is a model Superfund, a safe, secure success story. But in 2016, all of that came into question. Please help us gain control of this situation. PFAS contamination had turned up in surface water at Coakley as part of routine tests. PFAS is a class of industrial chemicals that was common in American manufacturing until the early 2000s. It was in Teflon, Gore-Tex, food wrappers, firefighting foams. It doesn't biodegrade, and it's been linked to cancers and other serious diseases. PFAS was starting to hit the national radar back in 2016. The EPA put out an advisory limit on it that New Hampshire soon made law. Also that spring, the state had found a cluster of cancer cases on the seacoast. Now neighbors worried Coakley and PFAS were to blame. The people who were still using private wells came to Portsmouth City Council to beg for public water hookups. Here's another resident, Janet Tibbetts. I honestly wonder how Peter Britz and Attorney Sullivan sleep at night. Have they no conscience? Ms. Tibbetts. I think it is time for the responsible parties to start to live up to that name and provide public water to Breakfast Hill in its entirety. Portsmouth is still studying whether those public water hookups near Coakley are feasible. But Bob Sullivan and other officials say all the testing they've done shows the PFAS levels in people's wells are safe under current EPA standards. And they say what is there could be coming from other sources. It can't be tied definitively to Coakley. Bottom line, they say the landfill is not a risk to public health. As we reach the summit of this mountain of trash, Sullivan says he thinks politicians and the media are stirring up this controversy for personal gain. I don't have any problem at all with people caring about Coakley. I think they should. But caring about it uh, doesn't necessarily mean being upset about it. I asked him if there's anything he'd have done differently at the start as Portsmouth City Attorney, if he'd known Coakley's PFAS problem was coming. Yeah, I think I'd have quit my job and gone into (laughs) private practice. (laughs) What is it that's so aggravated about it? Uh, We've done a really good job out here, complying with all the instructions we got from the Environmental Protection Agency. We've protected the public health 
and at the same time as much as possible protected the public taxpayer and yet you've been vilified to the nth degree. Vilified by the people living right on the other side of the woods around Coakley. And those neighbors are not reassured. I think we are in a mess, and I think we are the tip of the iceberg. Jillian Lane's family lives in a big, airy house, tucked away on a tree-lined cul-de-sac in the town of Greenland. It's peaceful outside, but through the front door. Sorry. Lane juggles hairbrushes and dolls as she and her husband wrangle their three daughters, aged three to nine, before summer camp. The Lanes built this dream home less than 10 years ago. It was a place to feel safe doing everyday things, like rinsing an apple at the kitchen tap. You gonna wash it? Lane never thought she'd have to worry about their private water well. Then, in 2016, she started to hear about kids in the next town over getting rare forms of cancer. Some kids died. Others are still undergoing treatment. There were only about a dozen cases, but it was enough to count as an official double cancer cluster. Lane was desperate to know whether her kids were at risk, so she started reading more. Underneath one of the articles was just a comment from a public citizen that said, Coakley, question mark? And I was like, Coakley? What the heck is Coakley? So I started Googling it. What she found was a landfill-turned-toxic-waste cleanup site just on the other side of the woods in her backyard. Lane was horrified as she read old Environmental Protection Agency and State Department of Environmental Services reports about the poisoned wells around Coakley in the 1980s. She'd had no idea it was so close. State law doesn't require such disclosures. But when Lane called her town administrator, she was told not to worry. She was very reassuring, and her perspective was that it's under control. EPA's involved. New Hampshire DES is involved. We have boxes and boxes and boxes and files upon files, and everything's under control. And I believe that that's how the town felt. But the town was about to learn something new about Coakley. That spring, high levels of PFAS were found at the landfill. Public officials said there was no proof the chemicals were leaking out of the landfill or that the cancer cluster was related. But neighbors like Lane were still worried about their wells. And so we're drinking the water and we're, you know, we're bathing in it, we're brushing our teeth in it, and we have no idea that we're living with this potential problem. Lane started going to meetings, sparring with EPA workers and Portsmouth City officials, demanding answers to her questions, pushing for more studies and public water lines to her neighborhood. And then in early 2017, PFAS was found again, even closer to home. It was in Barry's Brook, which trickles from Coakley out into the surrounding neighborhood. Lane wasn't waiting for public officials to act. After a lot of debate, she and her husband decided to spend several thousand dollars on high-tech PFAS water filters, granular activated carbon for the whole house, and reverse osmosis for a special drinking water tap in the kitchen. For me, it was knowing the potential of it coming and that I wanted I didn't want my kids to be exposed to it whatsoever. I want to I want to remove it. All that time, the Coakley Landfill Group was testing private wells in Lane's neighborhood, and they weren't reporting finding any PFAS. Then last fall, that changed. I came back with three parts per trillion. To Lane, it was a sign the toxic chemicals were creeping toward her home. But it turned out regulators weren't telling her the whole story. At first, the test results did not include very low levels of PFAS, ones the EPA couldn't be confident were accurate. But that changed last fall. The EPA decided to start reporting all the data, high or low. That's when Lane saw her first PFAS detection. But officials' efforts to explain the change still left her and other neighbors confused and worried. It wasn't clear to them just how long these low levels of PFAS might have been in their wells. It was an example of a miscommunication that fueled the panic at Coakley. 
Even so, three parts per trillion is a tiny amount. Imagine three grains of sand in an Olympic-sized swimming pool. Federal and state standards say water with 70 parts per trillion PFAS is safe to drink. But those standards are beginning to be challenged at the federal level. Um, This is a really um, great opportunity here. This past June, the Centers for Disease Control put out an 800-page toxicology profile of PFAS. The EPA, under former Administrator Scott Pruitt, had reportedly sought to keep the study private. The new data said as little as 7 to 11 parts per trillion of some kinds of PFAS could threaten human health. It's way less than EPA and state thresholds, and a lot closer to levels found near places like Coakley. The report was the elephant in the room just days after being published. The EPA was holding its first big regional meeting on new PFAS regulations in Exeter. And the CDC's acting toxicology director, Bill Sabulis, made an unscheduled appearance to clarify the new findings. This is not a bright line here. These are not regulatory actions. Um, They're not necessarily thresholds. We're not saying that exposures estimated above our minimal risk levels are to be associated with health effects. Instead, he says the CDC uses those low risk levels as a public health tool to identify places where they should look more closely for potential problems. Jillian Lane, her neighbors and residents from across New England were also at that meeting. There were families from Massachusetts. I catch myself wondering whether my dad's cancer, my grandmother's thyroid disease, and a combination of diseases that has left my uncle dead was in part due to the exposure of PFAS and other co-contaminants. And activists from near Pease Trade Port. Never did it cross my mind that I had to question the quality of the water that my children were drinking. And so I just want you to understand that I live with guilt every single day. And since the meeting, their pleas for more government response are starting to see results. Both state and federal officials are pledging new regulations and testing programs. At Coakley, they're working on studying bedrock beneath the site and fish and wetlands around it, hoping to learn more about the spread and source of the contamination. They announced possible new leads on that just this week. But Jillian Lane says she still sometimes wishes she'd never Googled Coakley in the first place. It's hard now to trust the officials overseeing the site and PFAS policy in general after years of delayed data, closed-door meetings, and regulators who made her feel ignored. The public shouldn't have to be driving this process. The public shouldn't have to be um, forcing the responsible party to be doing what's right and what's in the best interest of the public and protecting public health. You know, none of that contributed to building trust with the public. Lane says she knows her family can't escape all environmental risks anywhere they go. But just this month, they decided to leave Greenland and move to another town on the seacoast. Lane still wants the same things regulators and public officials want, proof of whether Coakley is truly safe and answers to the scientific questions that still surround it. Lane says she's not abandoning her activism. She just doesn't want to live next to the landfill anymore. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek. For more on this story, including a map showing water sample results near the Coakley site, go to nextnewengland.org. The Coakley landfill, like many in the U.S., took on all kinds of municipal and industrial waste for more than a decade in the 1970s and 1980s. But as space for dumping waste got scarce, recycling offered a new opportunity. Not only could products like paper, plastics, and aluminum cans stay out of landfills, but they could take on a new commercially viable life as the building blocks for new products. But the international market for some recyclable material has now crashed, and that has forced municipalities and solid waste companies to start charging more for recycling. 
VPR's John Dillon has our story. Much of the recyclable material in Vermont's most populous county ends up here, a large building in a suburban industrial park called a Materials Recovery Facility, or MRF. Conveyor belts move tons of paper, cans, and bottles, while workers quickly sort through trash that should not have ended up in the recycling bin. That's mixed paper, so that's what we end up sending to market. Right, so what you're looking at here is that's the raw material coming in. Goes up the conveyor, it's sorted, pre-sorted in that room. They pull off and put down a chute. Michelle Morris is Director of Outreach and Communications at the Chittenden Solid Waste District. She explains that even small amounts of trash in a bunch of mixed paper can gum up the machinery or contaminate the product with stuff a paper buyer doesn't want. Other material people think can be recycled is just plain dangerous. So you'll see bins at the feet of the sorters full of stuff that shouldn't have come here, that they're pulling off the line like propane canisters and uh, batteries from hand tools. Those are a real problem here. And contamination like this in the waste stream is also a problem because it makes our recyclables much less desirable to China. For years, China was a major market for the vast majority of U.S. recyclable materials, but earlier this year, it cracked down on what it would accept, and it imposed strict standards on contamination. Sarah Reeves, the general manager of the Solid Waste District, says even something like a plastic bag in a baleful of mixed paper was considered unacceptable. We're talking really about anything that's not paper. So it could have been an aluminum can, it could have been a plastic bottle cap, it could have been strapping. Anything that wasn't paper is considered contamination. And it's the same for plastic and aluminum. Reeves says China's decision to reject imports of recyclables has had a profound effect on the economics of recycling mixed paper. That's your junk mail, newsprint, magazines, and office paper. Last summer, the district could sell that stuff for $75 to $100 a ton. But this summer? We're now paying um, about $55 a ton to get that material onto a broker who can then try to further sell it into the marketplace. So that's a huge swing. Upwards of $100 a ton down to paying 55. Reeves says Vermont and the rest of New England is fortunate because unlike on the West Coast, waste handlers here can tap into markets in the U.S. and Canada for recyclable material like plastics. So there is a market, a very strong market for clean quality material, and that's really the key. Still, the district was forced to raise its prices for haulers, and that higher fee will be passed on to local residents. The district is also looking at new, next-generation technology that could use robotics to sort recyclables more efficiently and result in a cleaner product. But that could also cost consumers more money in the long run. Meanwhile, China's declining demand for recyclables will drive up prices around New England, But how much more consumers will pay will vary according to where they live and what kind of garbage service they have. Still, there's no doubt recycling will get more expensive. Casella Waste Systems operates transfer stations and a landfill in Vermont and is a big player in a trash business throughout the Northeast. Vice President Joe Fusco said the changes in the global market have upended the recycling business. The economics have changed so dramatically that we now have to kind of weigh 
is it worth it? Are the benefits that we get environmentally worth the economic cost that we'll have to pay? And so uh, I think one thing everybody is preparing themselves for is that this is going to be more expensive. Which brings the focus back to the consumer. If people generate less trash, they'll pay less to throw it away. Johnny Finity at the Chittenden Solid Waste District says, remember that old mantra, reduce, reuse, recycle? There's a reason the first word is reduce. Reducing the amount of junk mail that you get, reducing the amount of stuff that you have to put in your recycling bin helps a lot. And please, those in the business say, keep your recyclables clean and uncontaminated. That results in a more marketable product, and it's safer for the people handling your trash. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Coming up, a look at the challenges of governing in New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Each year, the New England governors and the Eastern Canadian premiers meet to discuss policy issues of importance to our region. Earlier this month, the meeting took place in Vermont, and the discussion centered around some of the big issues, energy, transportation, and trade. These governors get to sit together, some Republican, some Democrat, to talk about how they can work together. But all the while, there's also competition amongst this group for jobs and tax dollars. Later in our show, we're going to hear about a new casino in Springfield, Massachusetts, that has the casinos in Connecticut squarely in its sights. So how do governors balance cooperation versus competition when your neighbor is just a few miles away? We talked with Raymond Shapak. He's a professor of public policy at the University of Virginia, and he's former executive director of the National Governors Association. Also with us is James Pindle. He's a reporter for the Boston Globe, and he joins us via Skype. Welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Ray, why don't you start and give us a sense of what the job of governor actually is in your mind? Well, the governor sort of dominates in most states. So from a policy perspective, pretty much it's very difficult to get anything adopted unless it comes from the governor or the governor, in fact, supports it. So everybody else generally in the state has to respond to the governor, but very seldom are they really able to initiate anything. And the bully pulpit of the governor is just very, very, very powerful. The governor decides to call a press conference and and say, you know, hospitals are raising the cost too much. It's generally a problem uh, for everybody else to respond. They have enormous appointment powers. I mean, when you begin to compare the president of the United States to a governor, I used to remember uh, Bill Clinton and Bush II said uh, as president, if I only had the budget powers now that I had when I was governor. A lot of them have veto power, line item veto, amendatory power. A lot of them have the ability to cut budgets of up to 5% without legislative action. Uh, they, many of them can reappropriate money from the federal government without it going through the legislature. So enormous power, I say, rides with the governors. Now, 
I will say they differ a lot based on their constitutional powers. And so you have some like Massachusetts, which are fairly strong, and you've got a number of the others in New England, I would argue, are fairly weak. James, is there something you think about governing in New England that's different from governing other states elsewhere in the United States? Well, and look, I mean, I'll make a very obvious statement, but it's an important statement. There's geography. The mere fact is that you're not the governor of Wyoming or Texas or even Illinois. There's a, a need to be on the ground, to be visible, to have more retail politics, maybe not so much in Massachusetts or even Connecticut, where TB obviously is very important. But there is a sense that politics tends to be a little bit more you know, in your face because of just the geography and you are expected to go pretty much everywhere. I guess I'm wondering, Ray, with all the cooperation that we have to have, what's the role of governors trying to play one state off another to try to get under somebody else's tax rate or to try to steal somebody else's jobs or somebody else's baseball team? Well, I think in some ways you've got a unique situation because you've got Massachusetts, which is kind of dominant, but particularly dominant in the economic growth side. It's consistently been among the top 10 growers in the United States. And, you know, they're clearly not a low regulation or low tax state. So they've been fairly unique in terms of trying to build on the higher education that's in the state in terms of high technology, medical care, and so on. So what happens, I think, a lot in New England is the other states try to sort of cozy up. How do I get a piece of what's happening in in Massachusetts? They clearly compete with each other, but clearly New Hampshire and Rhode Island try to pull some of that industry down from Massachusetts. Uh, James, what are your thoughts on that? I I heard you laugh when I talked about baseball teams. Of course, Rhode (laughs) Island is losing a baseball team to, to Massachusetts. I'm not sure how much that has to do with the governors in either state, but it is emblematic of some of the competition that happens. You know, you know, in a in a very small way, it's actually a perfect microcosm of this entire conversation. You know, Gina Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island, is a Democrat. Charlie Baker, of course, is a first-term Republican governor of Massachusetts, different parties. They are famously close. They are flat-out friends. In fact, Charlie Baker attended her inauguration, and she drove up to Boston to attend his. And while they talk all the time about cooperation, they do joint events all the time, you know, Charlie Baker was very key in getting a state package to to get rid of one of two primetime sports teams in a small Rhode Island and bring it to Worcester, Massachusetts. And so Baker was very much about that. And Gina Raimondo, this is going to be tough for her and already a tough re-election year. I want to talk a bit more, James, if we could, about Charlie Baker. And if you put him on one end of the poll of uh, Republican governors in America. He's he's very, very popular, but he's also seen by many Republicans as a as a rhino or Republican in name only, or maybe even a Democrat in, in Republican clothing. Then way out at the other end, the outgoing governor of Maine, Paul LePage, is, well, he's as anti-Charlie Baker as possible. What do you see in these two governors in New England states who are so far apart and govern their states in such different ways? Yeah, you know, one of the most fascinating stories is that, you know, New England is very Democratic. There are 36 electoral votes, 35 went to Hillary Clinton. Of course, one did not and was in Maine. But do you see, despite how Democratic voting it is, you know, it's got 
Republican governors, you know, in in Maine, in Vermont, in New Hampshire, and in Massachusetts, in four of the six. So, and potentially could have run the table after this year's elections, a six out of six. But those Republicans are not running or governing in the same way at all. They're very diverse. You you laid it out perfectly. Another way of putting it is that you know, Paula Page said he was Trump before Trump. Meanwhile, Charlie Baker refused to even vote for president last time. You could see that ideological differences there. And what's also interesting to me anyway is that you're seeing different styles of the Republicans running for governor this time. The way you run in, in Massachusetts is different than what you're running in New Hampshire with Chris Sununu, who's like, walked this really fine line of being very tight with Trump, but yet having an idea that he's one step removed. And then in Maine, the guy running to replace LePage, Sean Mooney, is running entirely as LePage and Trump. So, I mean, he, they, there is still ideological diversity within the Republican Party. There's no one way a Republican gets elected governor in this region. Ray, what do you see as the appeal to mostly blue New England voters of having Republican governors? And it's not just now, but there have been Republican governors uh, historically throughout New England as well, even as the states are largely Democratic. Why is that? Well, one of the things you'll see is if they're going to vote for a senator or a congressman and they're going to send them to Washington, they pretty much vote party lines. And you can see it in New England. Basically, you have one senator and one congressman that are Republicans. Everybody else is either a Democrat or an independent that uh, caucuses uh, with the Democrats. But, and this is true somewhat nationally, but if it's for governor, they tend to look at the quality of the person because they know they're keeping that person back home. They can watch them all the time. And so there's a, there's a greater tendency to sort of not necessarily vote party, but to look more at the particular candidate and, and what, how good that candidate will be as a governor. I mean, you, you also see it in, you know, Maryland. Maryland is probably one of the most democratic states. Again, it's got a very popular Republican governor. I'm wondering, James, how fair it is to have the problems of a state, especially a small state that's geographically penned in by others, those problems be put at the feet of the governor. We, we think here in Connecticut, where I live, about Governor Daniel Malloy. He served two terms, decided he wasn't going to run for a third because he was facing historically low approval ratings. He was not very well liked within the state by voters and very much not liked within the state capital as well. But he seems to have inherited an awful lot of the same sorts of problems that other governors inherit. Big budget deficits, a lot of money being spent on state workers over the course of decades, and he's got to bear the brunt. Is this a fair way to look at what the job of governor really should be? Well, you you really highlight something else going on here, too, which is because of New England's small geographical footprint, there is I would argue much more than the Midwest, a visceral connection to how things are going well in the state next door that I visit once a week versus what's happening here. You saw it in the debates in Connecticut, particularly during the primary season where folks would say, you know, we need to make Connecticut the new Boston. And how did GE leave Connecticut and go to Boston and go to go to Massachusetts? Things are going well there. What's going on here? And you can see it much more in a visceral way than you can, say, comparing Indiana to Ohio for some reason because the states are so much smaller and people visit these places. And so I think when you see a person like Daniel Malloy trying to deal with a very tough, very tight budget situation with a lot of pensions and he raises taxes, businesses can say, well, it's not that big of a deal if I move an hour down the road. 
Ray Shapak is a professor of public policy at the University of Virginia and former executive director of the National Governors Association. James Pendle's a political reporter for the Boston Globe. Thank you both so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, a new casino opens in Springfield, Massachusetts. We'll look at how city residents are responding. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. In April of last year, I was standing in the middle of a construction site in downtown Springfield, Massachusetts. City officials had gathered to celebrate a milestone in the construction of a long-awaited, controversial casino that supporters said would help turn the struggling city around. At least that was the promise in 2011 when the Massachusetts legislature passed the Expanded Gaming Act that would allow for the state to build three new resort casinos to help compete with nearby Connecticut, whose two tribal casinos had dominated New England's gambling market for two decades. Springfield won the bid for the Western Mass Casino, and the contract went to MGM. Standing in the shadow of the bare steel beams last year, here's what MGM Springfield President Mike Mathis told me. All I can do is make sure, regardless of the competition, that we build a really compelling experience. And it'll be world-class, and it'll draw from, from um, past any other competitors, because you can't deliver uh, Main Street Springfield in any of these other settings, and you can't deliver the MGM brand and customer service. So we'll, uh, we'll continue to make sure that we're, uh, we're the destination of choice, and our market's big enough that, frankly, um, it's not us versus them. There's, 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 plenty of, uh, there's, there's plenty of customers that want to have this experience. This past week, the Springfield MGM Casino, all $960 million worth, opened to the public with lines down the street. Well, you know, we've been looking forward to MGM coming to Springfield, and uh, we wanted to see what it was all about. Yeah, it's supposed to be quite nice. That's Kathy Kelly from Cromwell, Connecticut. She and her husband, Tom, go to the casinos in southeastern Connecticut regularly. So do they think that Springfield will take business away from their state? I don't think so. I don't. Uh, well, I'm sure people will agree as we do. I mean, we enjoy going to Foxwoods and Mohegan. There are certain things we like at either one of the casinos, you know, restaurants or just special things we want to do. And uh, yeah, so shows. We'll have more about the business of casino gambling in a minute. But first, a look at one big concern when a new casino comes to town, a rise in gambling addiction. Massachusetts legislators took that into account when they wrote the 2011 law permitting casinos in the state. That means regulators and casino operators are required to make sure problem gamblers have access to help. But what options are available? New England Public Radio's Karen Brown takes a look. Even before the Springfield Casino opens, about 2% of Massachusetts residents have an addiction to gambling. That's according to UMass researcher Rachel Volberg, who studies gambling trends for the state. She says when she polled the problem gamblers, a quarter of them said they'd like to get help, but few had actually sought it out. Internationally, we know that problem gambling is associated with a great deal of stigma uh, and shame, and people much, much prefer to try and manage it by themselves. And that creates some dilemmas in the treatment world, starting with how to recognize who needs help. 
We consider it the hidden or invisible addiction. You don't come home with track marks in your arms. Marlene Warner runs the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling. You might come home a little bloodshot because you've been at the casino several days, but it's just not uh, revealing itself in the same way that in another addiction would. Visible or not, gambling addiction is expected to spike after MGM opens, based on past research. With that in mind, the Gandhara Center in Springfield is one mental health clinic preparing to do more screenings among its patients. Spokesperson Lisa Brecker says their mostly low-income population is high risk for gambling addiction, since many are unemployed and coping with poverty and violence. So they turn to a way to, you know, alleviate that. So the same way that some folks use um, substances, we're afraid that the same population will start to you know, misuse this recreational activity. Brecker says the center expects more people to develop gambling addiction, but not necessarily to tell their providers about it, which is partly why the clinic has trained many of its existing counselors in gambling treatment, but not hired anyone new. Based on supply and demand, we're pretty confident that we have enough people in place right now. What we are talking about and preparing for is that we do start to see a lot of these things identified during the intake process, you know, will we have to increase capacity? The tricky part, health leaders say, is making sure supply keeps up with the demand. Marlene Warner says the Massachusetts Council on Compulsive Gambling, under contract with the state, has ramped up its trainings, mostly among clinicians who already treat substance abuse and mental illness. We also get a lot of requests from community-based organizations, uh, certainly from senior centers. According to the council, about 150 practitioners across the state are certified to treat gambling addiction, including private practice and employees of larger health organizations. I'd say that there's a lot more groups that still need to be trained and a lot more groups that need some information. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health is charged with making sure there are enough gambling addiction services and that every licensed outpatient clinic has at least one trained counselor but the department would not provide an interview to explain how they are enforcing the requirements or assessing what's available. Jessica Collins directs the Public Health Institute of Western Massachusetts. I think people in the public health community are concerned. Her group released a casino impact report in 2013. It recommended more community resources to address gambling addiction. You need more funding to fund staff who can then intervene with individuals. This is like a one-on-one basis, which is very expensive. One future pot of money, an estimated 15 to $20 million a year, is the Public Health Trust Fund, which comes from a percentage of casino revenue. Collins wants the money to help more than just the gamblers, also families and neighborhoods affected by gambling. She says she believes the state will eventually invest in community-based treatment. No resources have been rolled out to local communities at this point to help agencies potentially set up and then deal with an increase of addictive gambling. The Springfield Health Department has not yet built up much infrastructure for problem gambling. But Commissioner Helen Calton Harris says she is concerned for the city. We have heard the stories about the casinos um, in Detroit and other places that really have sucked the life out of communities and then sort of moved on and left a trail of poverty. 
She says her office has recently secured funding for a position that will oversee gambling addiction services. That coordinator will not be on the job when the casino opens. And Colton Harris says it will take about a year to gauge the extent of problem gambling in Springfield. For now, she says they plan to refer people to their primary care doctors. I don't believe everything is in place that needs to be in place in terms of the casino and its impact on the city. This is new for us. Her office has been talking to Mark Vanderlinden, who runs the Responsible Gambling Division for the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. He says he doesn't know much about the treatment options in the community. He's been mostly focused on the prevention program called GameSense, which operates inside the casino. And while Springfield is certainly not the first city to host a new casino, Vanderlinden says policymakers have not learned much about best practices. The research on what is the impact when you open up a casino in a specific area is, is weak at best. That's where UMass researcher Rachel Volberg says Massachusetts is likely to be a leader. Part of her job is to track problem gambling over time after the casino opens, along with how the state is handling it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. So what about those other big casino questions? Will a new casino make Springfield a multi-state tourism hub? What will it mean for the people of the city? Last year when we visited the site, we talked with Melvin Edwards. He's a member of the Springfield City Council, and he's a member of the Casino Oversight Committee. He joins us now along with Mike Dobbs. He's managing editor of the Reminder Publications. Welcome back to Next. Thank you for asking. It's a pleasure to be here. Melvin, from your perspective, how did this opening weekend go? I remember walking the streets of Springfield with you when this was still going up and you could still see the steel beams of the casino. And there are still quite a few downtown storefronts that were closed up. Do you feel like this opening is a, is a new chapter for the city? Yes. In fact, I think it was spectacular. It was the most impressive event that I've been able to witness as somebody born and raised here in the city of Springfield. Um, I'm, I have to applaud all the entities that were involved in what has occurred. And I'm as excited as I was at the VIP at the opening, watching all the thousands of people in the streets, having a good time and, in, and just, you know, just kind of filing into the casino. Um, I'm also just as excited about the future and how this is just a start. Um, this is just the beginning. When you talk to your constituents, Melvin, what are they saying to you? Because I know leading up to this, there were an awful lot of people who were looking forward to the jobs, maybe looking forward to going and spending some money at the casino themselves. But others were concerned about everything from traffic to crime to just whether or not MGM was going to deliver on some of the promises they made. What, what are they saying to you? Well, um, most of them that I've heard from to this point have been very, very pleasantly surprised, um, starting with the fact that MGM has delivered. Uh, they've delivered on most of the promises that they've said. Obviously, they're not even open a full week yet. But up to this point, um, we have had uh, a record number of women working in construction. They hit mo all of the goals in terms of residents for uh, job opportunities. I have to applaud the effort that they made to do outreach throughout the community and um, to seek employees. Um, they bent over backwards. They did as much as they could humanly possibly do to ensure that residents got jobs and good jobs. And there were many people who came in looking for a, a particular job and they would walk through the process and ended up getting a job that was even better than what they had thought they might apply for.
But Mike, do you have the same sense? Do you think that MGM is meeting the goals that they set forward as far as who they were going to hire, how many jobs they were going to get to Springfield City residents? Yeah, I, I really do believe that MGM lived up to every one of the stipulations that was in the host community agreement. They made a great effort, and they are continuing to make a great effort in recruiting people. I know that uh, up until a uh, week before last, they were still looking for dealers. Uh, they were still training people. So, yes, I, I think in terms of living up to the promise, MGM has lived up to its promise. And, and Melvin, you've obviously got people who are your constituents who are looking for some of these jobs. Have they been telling you stories about the process of actually getting a job? I mean, if they want to go be a dealer, is it is it a pretty simple process to go down there, apply for a job, and, and get one at this new casino? Well, MGM actually did some creative things. First of all, they reached out to some of the employment entities in the area, uh, some of the local colleges. They created training programs. Uh, we live in a computer age, so there was uh, you could go online and you could actually punch in your skill sets. And they had a program that they created that would list what your qualities, uh, you know, coming into the workforce and then try to marry those qualities with potential jobs that you may not have been aware of when, you know, other than just being a dealer or a server. So I thought that was quite impressive. And if there was any disappointment, it was the fact that uh, too many people didn't take advantage of the opportunities that were being afforded them. And that was disappointing, but that was not a reflection of MGM's efforts. Mike, when we had reporters uh, from Connecticut and from other states come to the opening day ceremonies at the new casino, they were asking people where they were from, an awful lot of Massachusetts residents, local people who were excited to see this open and wanted to be in line. Some people obviously coming from Connecticut and other places where they're hoping to draw people. What do we know so far about the impact that this could have on the region? Is is a casino like this meant to draw people not just from, as they call it, the Pioneer Valley in the middle of Massachusetts, but also from Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut, and, and all over New England? Uh, during their presentations, uh, MGM would put a, a pushpin in the map in Springfield and then draw a circle of 100 miles around it. So basically, if you if you do that, you're talking about southern Vermont, southern New Hampshire, all of the Worcester area. You're practically talking about most of metropolitan Boston, and you're swinging down uh, quite a nice chunk into the state of Connecticut and also into New York State. So they always maintain that the distance of 100 miles is their potential market for this. We're going to have to see if that's going to happen, and we're going to have to see what uh, the two Connecticut casinos are planning to do in order to really um, beef up their market share, preserve their market share, and go against MGM. Yeah, you're talking about the possibility of those two casinos working together to build another casino somewhere in Connecticut a bit closer to Springfield so that people don't have to travel all the way down to the shoreline to Foxwoods and Mohegan Sun. Those have been tourist attractions for the greater Boston area and for New York City for years. Uh, Connecticut's trying to to keep people from going north to Springfield just by building another casino, it seems. Yes, that's been their plan. They have a site in East East Windsor along Interstate 91. Uh, it's, it's also, as under my understanding, they haven't received the necessary permissions that they need from uh, the federal government to do this. Um, you know, what we need to do here in Springfield is that we need to have the various tourism entities that are already drawing people to our region 
cooperate. So this is like Six Flags and Agawam and the Basketball Hall of Fame and the Springfield Museum Complex uh, and, of course, all the activities at the Eastern States Exposition Grounds. We really need to leverage all of this as to, to really draw uh, from different markets and to allow people to see that this is a destination worth coming to. What are the things, Mike, you're going to be asking about? What are the things that you need to learn a little bit more about as this casino now gets underway and starts to run and change the city? Okay, so the biggest question is the one part of our host community agreement which has not been finalized and and not been completed, and that is the construction of 54 market-rate apartments in downtown. This was something that was part of the agreement. Originally, they were going to have apartments in the casino complex, which was an interesting concept that you could actually live in the casino. However, they decided that this was something that was not financially feasible for our uh, retail uh, uh, real estate market and agreed to build these 54 apartments elsewhere downtown. The problem is right now is that uh, we're sort of at this point where the Gaming Commission has given them a deadline to fish or cut bait and start a real project, while at the same time the city of Springfield wants them to join a developer in putting these market rate apartments in our Court Square complex, which is across the street from MGM. We haven't had any movement there, and we need to see where this is going to go because this, again, is more construction jobs, and also it's the potential of beefing up downtown as a livable middle-class neighborhood. So that is the big issue that no one really wants to talk about right now, but, yes, I'm going to be asking him questions. Mike Dobbs asked questions for the Reminder Publications. He's managing editor there. Mike, as always, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Melvin Edwards is a member of the Springfield City Council and a member of the Casino Oversight Committee. Melvin, good to speak with you as well. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Sandy Hausman at Virginia Public Radio and Bart Rankin at New England Public Radio. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. With support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.